Welcome everybody, uh, this is Angela B. Sprague and this is my first ever podcast. Um, I'm quite excited about it, but uh, let's see how it goes. I wanted to actually uh, introduce you to, uh, to you, to all of you about our reading group, House of Readers, where we usually uh, read um, books on Facebook Lives and you can see us and hear how we're reading and practice your reading skill and enjoy and have a laugh. But this book is um, rather special and it's uh, written by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's one of the Lent books for uh, 2020 that I didn't get to read during Easter. It's saying, saying yes, the title is Saying Yes to Life by Ruth uh, Valerio. Saying yes to life and we have just passed our 50th Earth Day. I thought it'd be really interesting learning about, uh, you know, environment side of things because I love, I love to pay attention to how we treat Mother Earth. So I'm going to read a little note here. Actually, Dr. Ruth Valerio is Global Advocacy and Influencing Director at Tear Fund, an environmentalist, theologian and social activist. Ruth holds a doctorate uh, from King's College, London, and honorary doctorate from the universities of Winchester and Chichester. She is a canon, canon theologian at Rochester Cathedral, and her home church is part of the 24-7 prayer network. She enjoys living sustainably practicing what she preaches and inspiring others as she does so in the south of England with her family. She is the author of L is for Lifestyle, Christian living that doesn't cost the earth and just living, faith and community in an age of consumerism. All royalties from the sale of this book will be used to support Tear Fund's work in the places of greatest need. How wonderful. Saying yes to life. With deep appreciation for Peter and Miranda Harris, Susanna and Chris Naylor, so I'm about to read forward. At the beginning of Lent in 2017, I travelled to Fiji to attend a meeting of the primates of the Anglican Communion in the Oceania region. Fiji is a place that has already begun to see the devastating consequences of climate change. Water levels have been rising, forcing populations to relocate 
and cyclones have devastated communities. It was while I was there that one of the primates said to me, so memorably, that for you Europeans, climate change is a problem for the future. For us, it is a problem of everyday survival. As part of the global church, we are called to care not just for God's creation, but for our brothers and sisters all over the world who face having their families uprooted and their livelihoods destroyed by the effects of climate change. Every single one of us has a responsibility as part of our disciplineship to Jesus Christ to live a life that cares for God's world and its creatures. As Psalm 24 reads, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Sadly, Christians have not always given God's creation the reverence it deserves. The Old Testament offers us a picture of human beings as intimately linked to the environment, where their actions have a profound effect on the land, and they are held responsible for it, from the dominion of Genesis to the covenant with Noah that holds them accountable for the blood of every creature, to the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and their concern for the land. The idea of dominion has been interpreted by some Christians to mean that we can do whatever we want to the land, that it is ours to exercise our control and power over whatever the cost. Yet this is profoundly mistaken and fails to note the heavy responsibility laid on human beings and their complete interdependence with creation, which means there is no space for human flourishing outside of the flourishing of the natural world. It is of the utmost importance that we now stand in solidarity together repenting of our sins towards our earth and committing to face our responsibilities as God's people. As people of faith, we cannot just say what we believe. We are obliged to live out the life that Christ calls us to live, to care for our neighbours, for the creation, uh, creatures, creatures, and the creation that God has so generously given us. We all know that sin is the state of being estranged from God, but in mistreating and abusing his creation, God's gift to us, we are also estranged. There is a need to rebuild our relationship with our planet so that we might rebuild our relationship with its creator.
Lent is a time for us to focus on Jesus' death and resurrection and our reconciliation and atonement with God through this sacrifice. This year, I hope you might spend some time thinking about our reconciliation with God's creation as we explore the creation story of Genesis 1 together. Ruth Valerio's book is perfect for individuals and groups to think, reflect, pray and be challenged together. The most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. God isn't saying everything's fine. There is nothing to be afraid of when he commands us not to fear. He is acknowledging that life is scary and sometimes we are rightly afraid when we are confronted with such existential existential issues. Existential, I have no idea how to pronounce that word. But God is beside us working with us in our communities and our churches, in our politics and our governments, and he will not leave us to face our fears alone. This Lent is an opportunity for us to consider and respond to God's call, to live a life that is caring and restorative, we rise to the challenge with optimism and perseverance alongside our fellow Christians from around the world so that we might live lives that are led by Christ and shaped by the Holy Spirit in deep reverence for God's creation. This note is by Justin Cantoir Lambeth Palace. London. I'll leave the acknowledgement and I will start from the introduction in the beginning. In the beginning Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, before the heavens and the earth existed, lived a God and a Goddess, Apsu the god of fresh water, and Tiamat, the goddess of salt water. Before meadowlands or reed beds had been formed, when there were no other deities and no destinies had yet been decreed, these two mingled their waters and from those waters came younger gods. Those younger gods grew in strength and stature and became wise and mighty. 
I spoke at a conference recently where I began my talk in this way. I hadn't intended to alarm people, but apparently when I opened with the line, in the beginning there was a god and a goddess. A delegate sitting next to a friend of mine turned to him and said in a worried whisper, I thought this was a Christian conference. Why is the speaker saying this? As I continued with the story that we shall hear more of below, I could feel the atmosphere change and people began to be concerned. I had lost my biblical rooting. So, why start a Lent book with a strange tale of God and goddesses? This story forms the beginning of the Mesopotamian creation poem called Anuma Alish. Though the thought to date back possibly to 1800 BC, the title is taken from the opening of the poem and means when on high. And it is a fascinating account to consider in relation to Genesis 1. Through these next six weeks of Lent, we are going to read Genesis 1 together and see how the themes of this opening chapter of the Bible weave their way through the biblical story and into our lives. We will use the days of creation to open our eyes to the world around us, to the people who live in it with their diversity, gifts and struggles, and to the other inhabitants who share our space and the environments within which we live in all their wonder, beauty and fragility. Each chapter will look at one of the days of creation and will focus on the various aspects of the natural world that are created on that day. We shall see how these aspects feature in the Bible and then consider their place in our contemporary world. Saying yes to life is therefore a mix of biblical reflection and contemporary application and through its pages we shall see churches and Christians working to bring resurrection life into many situations. As Christians we live our lives out of the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and we remember his sacrifice every time we take communion throughout the year. However, Lent is a time for us to focus on these things particularly. During its 40 days, we fast or give up certain things and dedicate extra time on our own and with others to prepare ourselves for other events of Holy Week and Jesus' death, which led ultimately, of course, to Easter Day 
and the victorious resurrection. Lent thus gives us an opportunity to reflect on our wrongdoing and its impact and to consider what practices of resurrection hope we might then take on. You may read this book either on your own or as part of a Lent group. Each chapter ends with questions for reflection and discussion and a prayer written by a young person from one of the six human inhabited continents of the world. It is young people who will live in the world that is being created today. And young and old, we must stand together, act together and pray together. There is a wealth of resources online at www.spckpublishing.co.uk stroke saying yes resources which will help you discover which will help you discover more about the topics we consider in each chapter and give you further ideas for taking action on these pages you will also find special interviews with leading experts from around the world to watch and bring into your discussions and reflections don't miss those but before we delve into day one in chapter one, we need to return to our story of gods and goddesses, because if we are going to appreciate Genesis 1 properly, we must spend some time understanding the wider context within which it came into being. I am aware that thinking about the context for Genesis, I might be a new idea. No, context for Genesis 1 might be a new idea for some of us reading this book. We may never have considered the origins of these creation texts and the fact that they were written in and shaped by a specific time and place in Israelite history. Yet it is key to know that these accounts have their background within the world of the ancient Near East and that there were other stories about how the world came into being and about a place called Eden and a flood that originated with Israel's neighbours. These had been circulating for many years before the time it is thought that the Genesis narratives found their final form. The other stories are almost certainly all older than the Genesis text and it seems likely the writers of the biblical passages were familiar with them and used them when writing their own accounts. Let us listen to more of the story we started at the beginning of the chapter, picking up where we left off, with the younger gods having just, be, 
having just been begotten by Apsu and Tiamat. Unfortunately, as well as being strong and mighty, the young gods also became unruly and troublesome. In true fashion as young men, they banded together as brothers and ran amok amongst the gods, dancing and parting loudly. They did so. They did this so much that they upset Tiamat's nerves, disturbed Apsu's sleep, and stopped his daytime rest. Apsu decided enough was enough, and he plotted to destroy the young gods in order to get his peace back. However, one of them, Ea, heard about the plot and putting Apsu into a deep sleep, he killed him and created, created his own dwelling place out of Apsu's body. Tiamat was furious at what Ea had done and she gathered around her a different set of gods and created demons, including the Hydra the scorpion man and the hairy hero, yes, really, in order to bring down Ea and his brothers. One particular son was called Marduk, the god of all gods, so amazing and wondrous that he would scare, he, he would scarce be looked at. With her new husband, Kingu, Tiamat ruled and introduced a reign of terror and chaos. When Ea heard of Tiamat's fury and, de and desire for revenge and about the hideous army she had drawn around her and her rule, and her rule of chaos, he sent various of the gods to try to appease her, but none of them had the courage even to approach her. The gods met to discuss what could be done and finally Marduk agreed that he would fight her on condition they appointed him king. This they did and saw, and so Marduk set out and in his mighty battle captured Tiamat, the demons, and her divine allies. Having slain the gods and tied the demons to his feet, he went back to Tiamat and killed her too, in a manner far too gruesome to repeat here. Marduk sliced Tiamat's dead body in two and formed the heavens from one half of her and the earth from the other. He created the Euphrates and Tigris rivers to flow from her eyes and from her breasts. He created the mountains. Then from the blood of the defeated and slain Kingu, he created humankind to serve the gods and set the gods free from having to do any work. And thus the world and its inhabitants were created.
That's an interesting introduction. Taming the Sea Dragon. We are continuing. We have page and a half, almost two pages of introduction to finish. Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation story, is based on an older Sumerian myth which was reappropriated when Babylon conquered the wider Mesopotamian region. The story was designed to establish the supremacy of Babylon as the ruling kingdom with Marduk as the supreme god. When we read this and other ancient Near Eastern stories and compare them with the texts of Genesis uh, 1 to 11, particularly the narratives around the creation and the flood, though we will focus on the creation story and put the flood to one side, we find they carry a number of similarities, but also some big differences. What was going on? Had the writers of a Genesis story simply copied this and other stories to develop their own versions? Or was something else at play? Both the Genesis text and Enuma Elish start from a place of chaos. The notion of the deep term in the Hebrew has resonances with the Babylonian Tamtu, which relates to the goddess Tiamat, representing the primordial sea or ocean. Both texts begin the actual creation with the separation of heaven and earth, and both texts describe the establishing of the rhythm of day and night and the sacred seasons. Yet, here is where the similarities end and it becomes clear that one of the purposes of the opening chapters of the Bible was to challenge the society around Israel about the prevailing views on God, the world, and the status of the people who inhabit it. As the creation stories come at the beginning of the Bible, we tend to think they were the first texts to be written. However, it is actually more likely that they are some of the later texts of the Old Testament and that although versions of the stories may have been circulating orally for some while, they assumed their final form when the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon. This was around the time prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel were speaking. The Israelites found themselves in a situation of exile. They were strangers in a strange land, surrounded by peoples, customs and religions very different from their own. People, sorry, Babylon was a land of domination where kings ruled absolutely 
and the rest of the population were their subjects. Not surprising when their creation stories were centered around murder, double crossing and conquest. Nothing of the Israelite un understanding of justice and caring for the land was known. None of the laws of Babylon talked about looking after the widow or the stranger or giving back land to the dispossessed or leaving the edges of the fields unharvested or allowing the animals to rest. So the people of Israel found themselves in a crisis of faith, disorientated and dislocated. Into this context comes Genesis 1, a narrative written in stark contrast to the account of the Babylonians, a narrative that has stood the test of time and whose influence has resounded through the millennia. As we shall see, its message is one of hope, peace and confidence. A good God who reigns supreme has created a very good world with people created to work with him in taking care of it and one another, not as his slaves but as his friends. This is what we are going to explore as we go through the days of creation together. We will look at themes of light and water, land and trees, sea creatures and birds, land animals and then finally the last animal to be created, humans. We will consider how all these themes weave together and what an amazing but troubled world we live in. We will see churches and Christians working to bring resurrection life into many situations and we shall think about what actions we can take ourselves. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Millions of Christians state this belief around the world every Sunday. It is foundational to our faith and the topics we shall be looking at in this book are foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For too long the theology and the practice of caring for people and planet have been sidelined in the Christian faith. It is high time to bring them into the center and root them, root them strongly in our churches and Christian lives. My prayer is that this book will play a small part in helping that to happen. Thank you for listening. Reader Angela B. Sprague who also reads in the House of Readers. Thank you.